Well, I want to read to you our verses for tonight. 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 12. truth. Yes, I think it is right, as long as I am in this tent, to stir you up by reminding you, knowing that shortly I must put off my tent, just as our Lord Jesus showed me. Moreover, I will be careful to ensure that you always have a reminder of these things after my decease. And the title of tonight's message is The Necessity of Reminders, and we're going to get some uh, reminders from our honorary guest tonight, the Apostle Peter. Have you ever said to anyone, or has anyone ever said to you, how many times do I have to tell you? Now, you parents are saying, I have to say that to my kids a lot. Uh, sometimes my wife has to say to me, she has to tell me that kind of stuff a lot. But if you are a maturing follower of Jesus, when someone tells you that they have to remind you about something, instead of getting angry, instead of being defensive, why don't you just say, hey, thanks for the reminder? And that's what we want to do with Peter tonight. Reminders are very important. In fact, if you want to keep maturing in the Christian faith, they are absolutely critical. So in the previous studies that we were involved in, particularly in verses 3 through 11, we were talking about maturing in being in the Christian faith, or we might call it progressive maturity or progressive sanctification, becoming more like Jesus. And now when we come tonight to verses 12 through 15, the letter begins to turn. These are what we call in Bible study transitional verses. And in verse 16, which Lord willing we'll get to next week, Peter will begin to tell us about why he wrote the letter. And then he'll move into the ways and the words of false teachers and their false converts. But in verse 12, he encourages the people that he's writing to, the churches that he's writing to, any of the Bible readers, which would include us. Uh, he's encouraging us before warning us in verse 12. And then in verse 13 and 15, he, 13 to 15, he tells us that he's near death. And we are going to begin to sense his urgency. And that really makes sense of the rest of the letter. If you, this is a pivotal study, really, in terms of understanding his sense of urgency. So let's read verse 12. For this reason, I will not be negligent, interesting choice of words there, to remind you always of these things, though you know and are established in the present truth. The English Standard Version puts it this way. Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. J.B. Phillips, New Testament, says it this way. I shall not fail to remind you of things like this, although you know them and are already established in the truth. So it's very interesting that the, the way each version puts it. I will not be negligent to remind you always. Now you're saying, well, he's gone, but he's reminding us tonight. I intend always to remind you, he says. And then he says in another version, I shall not fail to remind you. To remind them of what? The truth. The truth. The hope of heaven that we gain through the person of Jesus Christ, through faith and trust in him. Uh, the forgiveness of sins and the need for living out the Christian life here, which would include... The forgiveness of sins. Forgiveness of sins is really one of the big essential doctrines of the, of the Christian faith, not just for that God forgives our sins, but we, having been forgiven, we forgive others. Uh, these are the words of a dying man. Now, Peter was by no means a perfect man. Nobody's been perfect except for Jesus Christ. But we do notice about Peter that he is faithful he intends to be faithful, and he is faithful all the way to the end in living out the Christian life and calling all of us to do the same, calling all of us to a, a full-time devotion to Jesus. And, and for the apostles, uh, when they write, it's very interesting, and we see it here with Peter, 
the eternal destiny of the Bible reader hangs in the balance. They're very much aware of the weightiness, the heaviness of the subject matter in which they write about and, and calling all of us uh, to persevere in the faith. So he begins with, for this reason, or therefore. What do you mean? Well, because of God's calling, of stuff we've already covered before, that he, God gave us, we saw it in verse 3 and 4, everything we need for life and godliness. And then he moved on to the essential qualities of the Christian life, which was in verses 5 through 7. And that's why he's telling us what he's telling us tonight. And the life of godliness that is actually needed, not that we work our way to heaven, but we do demonstrate we are going to heaven by the way that we live for the heaven-bound people of God, which we saw in verses 8 through 11. Because of these things and what he's going to continue to teach us through this letter, Peter says this to, you, to us, I will always be reminding you to live for Jesus. As long as I breathe, and as long as my words survive me, I, that was something that I always intend to be doing. Now, it's interesting. He, he says, essentially to them, I will remind you of the truth you already know. Now, why would somebody remind us of a truth we already know? Well, it's simple, because we forget. Once again, we have to think about the tensions of the Christian life, which we often tend not to keep in tension if we're followers of Jesus. If you're not a follower of Jesus, welcome tonight. Glad that you're with us. But followers of Jesus often forget to hold some of the tensions. For example, there is a call to faith. And once we receive Jesus as our Lord and Savior, then we are called, created unto good works. We don't do the good works to, to get the call of Jesus. Jesus calls us to faith in him, and that is followed by our good works. It is a tension. Another tension we might say is believing or trusting in the word of God and then living it out. In other words, we read about Jesus, we hear about Jesus, we're taught about Jesus, and then we desire to be with Jesus and to be like Jesus to live out the Christian life. Uh, most Christians, and we all have to admit this is partially true probably for all of us or true a lot, seem to favor one or the other. You have some people that are all about faith and good works. Well, that doesn't really seem to be that important. Then you have others that are only about good works. And faith, well, you know, that's, that's, little, that's for the hyper-spiritual types. But the tension is, is that both of them go hand in hand. So what it's supposed to be is faith that feeds good works. Faith is always first, and it feeds our good works. Also, another tension that a lot of times people don't keep very well is grace and effort. That we've talked about that in earlier studies, that most people learn lean towards one or the other. If you're pretty much only about grace and no effort, don't be surprised if you're really struggling with a lot of sin. Because if you think, it doesn't really matter how I live, then, then you know, I'm just going to do my thing. And then some people say, well, I'm just going to sin and then I'll ask God to forgive me. If you're married, is that the way your marriage works? I hope not. That is not a cool way to, to be married. Um, and then other people, um, they, they only just think about effort. They're, they're, they disassociate, disassociate themselves from grace, especially after they become followers of Jesus, and that is a prescription of burnout, for burnout. So if you're not combining the two of them, the grace of God and personal effort, or what we call grace-motivated effort, that's what's going to keep you from repetitive, unrepentant sin and is also going to keep you from uh, burnout. These are things the Word of God is constantly telling us. Again, the reason, because we forget. Also, we are prone to wander. It is very easy to forget our Christian faith. Now, this is, this is nothing new. This is a, a big theme throughout the Scripture. 
a big theme from the Bible writers. They're constantly reminding us uh, what life looks like when Jesus Christ truly is, not lip service, but truly is our Lord and Savior. Now, we may know the Bible. Unfortunately, there's less and less people who know the Bible, but we may know the Bible, but we easily forget. We also easily lose our desire to practically live out the commands of the Bible. We've talked about this in previous studies. Remember, God tells us what he's done, and then he tells us how to go and live. So we may know what he told us to do, but we might not be doing it. It's like, let's say you go to the doctor, and the doctor says, listen, this is the deal. You have this problem. You need to, you need to stop eating this and start eating that. You know, knock it off with the Reese's peanut butter cups for lunch, and, and you know, stop going to friendlies and just ordering the, you know, or some ice cream place, a Dairy Queen or something like that, and just only ordering ice cream. It's okay once in a while. Don't get, don't get me wrong. But um, if your doctor says it's okay, and you need to have a better diet, and you know in your head what you need to do, but you don't do it. That's a lot of what the Bible writers are telling us a lot of people tend to do with their Christian life. They know the Bible, but they forget. They know the Bible, but they lose their desire to live out the commands of God. There's other practical examples that are just more than what you're doing. There's some theological things which, when you're a pastor, you see a lot of people struggling with. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, we say this all the time around here. Jesus Christ died on the cross in your place for your sins. If you go out on the street and you say to people, can you tell me something about Jesus? Usually if they're a little bit older or they grew up in church, they'll say, Jesus died on the cross for our sins. You say to them, well, what does that mean? And they go, I don't really know. Very, very rarely will you meet someone who will say, well, Jesus died on the cross for my sins because I put my trust in him. But a lot of people would say they know that Jesus Christ died on the cross for their sins. But you know what they're paralyzed with? Guilt and shame. You really don't know that or you've forgotten that. Because if he died for your sins, then that should help to erase. It may take some time, but erase your guilt and your shame. Others would, would know this that when Jesus died on the cross for your sins, he makes you holy, takes away your sins, he gives you his holiness, his righteousness, and yet they forget and they start to live unholy lives. Or they never really come to the place where they start to live holy lives. So those are other ways that we can forget what Jesus has done for us. Uh, to make matters worse, Many of the false teachers, and we'll see this again when we get to chapter 2, were and still are helping people to think it's okay to live an ungodly life. It's a terrible, terrible thing. We call this, again, we've called it before, but we, we don't call it, it's what people call it, hyper-grace teaching was and still is an excuse for a lot of people's ungodliness. I cannot tell you how many hyper-grace teachers I have heard. And you sit there and go, oh, this sounds great. This sounds wonderful. And then six months later, one year later, scandal. Scandal. Because they didn't understand that God's grace was not so we could just, was not only forgiveness and was not only that we could do whatever we want, but it would motivate us to live for Jesus. So what he's talking about is Bible knowledge that is disconnected from obedience. And if you read the Old Testament, we, when we study the Old Testament, we'll often say that in Jewish thinking, if you say you know something and you don't live it, the Jews would say, then you don't know it. You say, oh, no, no, I do know it. They say, no, you don't. Because knowing and living are actually not two things. They are one thing. And so Peter wants us to understand that. And here he gives us the goal in verse 12. He says that we would be established in the truth. Or 
established in the present truth. Now, that word established is very interesting. It can also mean strengthened. So you would be strengthened in the present truth. Now, we're going to see throughout this letter, there are several corrective measures that these people need to take, that the recipients of this letter need to take. Yet, it's so interesting that he says that you would be established or strengthened in the present truth. In other words, he says to them, you're followers of Jesus, the truth is in you. It's always present. You just need to be established in it. You just need to be strengthened in it. And this is the sad thing. If you follow Jesus long enough, you will, in time, see someone you, must, you once thought was a spiritual giant fall. You'll see someone you thought was a spiritual rock fall into error or sin. Now, here's the thing. It can happen to any of us. And the minute we think it can happen to us, you want the bad news? We're already on the way. We're already on the way. What's amazing, really, is how many pastors and leaders are susceptible to this once they lose touch with Jesus. And this is why for anybody, pastor, leader, whatever, that we must stay connected to Jesus. You say, well, is it, could it really happen to a pastor or a leader or a really sold-out Christian? It even happened to Peter. Peter knows what he's talking about. At the Last Supper, Luke chapter 22, verse 31 and 32, it says, And the Lord said, Simon, Simon, that's Peter, Indeed, Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat. That's a bad sign. That's a bad sign. Do you know any Christians that have been sifted like wheat? It's really bad. It's not a pretty sight. But I have prayed for you that your faith should not fail. And when you have returned to me, in other words, after you're sifted, but your faith doesn't fail, Peter, you're going to come back. See, Judas didn't come back. Peter came back. And when you have returned to me, strengthen your brethren. So let me ask a question, very soul-searching question, that I want to ask maybe someone that's watching right now. Have, have you been sifted? Has Satan sifted you like wheat? You know, just taking the, sifting it down so the wheat comes down and and, and, and did your faith fail? Here's the question. Tonight, you know this is why you're watching, don't you? Tonight, will you come back to Jesus? Will you return to him? Or are you too proud? Or is your theology that bad that you think he won't take you back? And you think, oh, he could never forgive me for what I've done. No, he, he can forgive you for whatever you've done. Because to say that Jesus can't forgive you or to say you can't forgive yourself is to have a higher standard than Jesus himself has. He's willing to forgive you. Come. That is the message of the gospel. Come to Jesus. Come back. The lesson from uh, verse 13 is that verse 12 is important. Um, just because you are established in the truth doesn't mean that you always will be. It's very important to understand that. That's why we need grace-motivated effort to stay established or strengthened in the truth. Again, the Apostle Peter, he talks from that which he knows. Jesus is telling everybody he's going to die. Oh, Lord, Lord, I am ready to go to prison with you. Or if I need to, let me straighten you out, Jesus. If I need to, I will even die with you. You just picture Jesus like, oy vey. <laughs> Pete, Pete, listen, listen, listen. Tonight you're actually going to deny me three times. 
You're not going to go to prison with me. You're not going to die with me. You're going to tell everybody you don't even know me. Now, maybe that has happened to you. Well, loved ones, let me tell you, don't waste your crash and burns. <laughs> we all have times when we crash and burn in this thing called the Christian life. God's like, well, they need a little bit of humility there. Or, oh, you think you're so good? Okay, I'll let the line out a little, but only so far, and then I'll pull it, I'll pull it in. And, and don't waste your crash and burn experience. Repent. Come back to Jesus and be put on solid ground. Uh, grace reminders. God gives us grace reminders. Just little things sometimes that he just reminds you that he's there or, or gospel reminders of times when he, he reminds you that you have been forgiven of your sins and, and you know, maybe, some, maybe somebody does something or says something to you and your friends are like, you should be so offended. And you're like, it's, it's okay. You know, maybe they didn't mean it or maybe they're having a bad day or, you know, things are not going their way. And you get in your car and you're like, wow, God, you've really done a lot in my life because there would have been another point in time in my life I'd have wanted to jump in with them and like, yeah, you better believe it, what they did to me. But, but God gives you these, these grace reminders, these gospel reminders. What do they do? Not only when he reminds you what he did for you, but when you start to see the fruit of you living out what he has done for you. When you see Christ-likeness actually coming from you to the point in time where it surprises you. It, 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 it stuns you. It's something that is strengthening you from the inside out. It sustains you in the Christian faith. And what happens is it builds upon, it, it strengthens, it establishes the truth that is in you, the Holy Spirit power uh, that is in you. So reminders are, are needed for growth. They're needed for Christian growth. Why? Because our natural tendency is to wither. If we're not growing, we're withering. You know, you know what happens when, did you ever go away for a couple days and come home and it was a really like dry, hot week or something like that and your plants weren't watered and you come home and you're like, oh, they need a drink. And because they're just withering. That is the tendency for all of us in the Christian life if we're not watering our souls. And, and it's very, very common. And the reason it's so common is godliness. If you know the story of the, the, the children of God wandering in the wilderness, godliness is like manna. It, it only lasts so long. It, it spoils quickly. And, and here's, again, a very... Not easy thing to hear, but very, very important. If the reminders that are they're on every page of the Bible, if the reminders of the Christian life, if the reminders of the Word of God bore you, it's quite possible that the withering has already begun. It's quite possible that the spoilage in your heart and in your soul has already begun. Verse 13 and 14, he says, yes, I think it is right as long as I am in this tent. Some of your versions uh, say body, some say bodily tent, to stir you up by reminding you. I know that shortly I must put off my tent. That means he's going to die, just as our Lord Jesus showed me. So he said reminding in verse 12. Now he says reminding here in verse 13. So Peter, like the Apostle Paul, uses the word tent to describe his body. Well, what is it, what is it and to describe his life? What is a tent? It's a temporary dwelling place. You set it up for a little while, you stay there for a little while, and then you what? You pick it up, you move somewhere else. So here he's saying that my temporary dwelling place here on earth, my body, my, the temporary thing that's holding inside my, so, my spirit and my soul, I'm about to put it off, I'm about to break camp, if you will, and I'm about to move on to the next life. Now, we do believe that this letter was written in the 60s, 60 AD, not the 1960s. Caesar Nero was really clamping down 
uh, uh, on followers of Jesus. The Roman Empire that he controlled was really gunning for the leaders. And also, there's a, Peter's dealing with the false teachers that are coming into the church. What would happen is the apostles would start the church. They would leave. They would go to another town. And you know who would be right behind them? The false teachers. And that's what happens a lot even today. Somebody comes to faith in Jesus Christ, and then somebody hands them a book by a false teacher. It's inevitable. And so these are things that we all need to be very, very careful of. And if somebody tells you what you're reading is not exactly very good, you know, ask a few people who really know the Bible very well. And, and you know, if they say, yeah, it's not, there's other better books out there, they're just being nice, or they say, no, stay away from that guy, don't get offended. Just There's plenty of other good stuff to read uh, out there. And the apostle, it's interesting, I just said that Nero was really clamping down on the followers of Jesus and the churches, but the apostles uh, call the church to put government in perspective. That, that's probably the best way to do it. it. God, Romans 13, tells us that God gave us the government to, to kind of regulate affairs. Some governments are good, some are uh, not so good. But as much as it's easy to think about the government, the church, um, I mean, the Bible teaches a lot more about Jesus Christ, way more, way more about faith, and way more about the church. And one thing we have to acknowledge as Americans, we have a low view of the church. We, we don't really consider it to be all that important. We consider personal faith to be much more important. Personal faith is very important, but when you read the Old Testament, it's about the people of God. And when you read about the New Testament, it's about the church that Jesus died for or the bride of Christ. And so we need to keep these things in perspective. As we said Sunday, if you were with us, that, that government regimes and leaders change, but what doesn't change? What Jude called the faith once delivered to the saints. And the saints are simply people who have put their trust in Jesus Christ. So while Peter said in verse 12 that followers of Jesus are established in the present truth, he also knows that loss of zeal is very common. And that's what he's kind of pressing into these people at, at the very end of his life. He is determined to continue to call people to faith and to following Jesus. And he's continued, he's determined to call the church, the collective people of God, the, the, the weekly gatherings, or the, they would gather more than that, but the gatherings of God's people uh, in the local community, faith communities to faithfulness until he goes home. What a worthy goal. But that goal to continue to call people to faithfulness will meet a lot of opposition. It will meet a lot of opposition from the culture. And actually, it will meet a lot of opposition from the church. A lot of people don't like being told that they're sinners, even in church. A lot of people don't like being told how to live, even in church, even if it's coming right from the pages of Scripture. But, but that's why Peter calls us to remember that we are to remember the core truth of the gospel, that we are sinners saved by grace, that we were, God put us on earth, told us how to live, and, well, we just were like, no, God, we're not going to do it. So God, in his great love, became a man in the person of Jesus Christ. God sent his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who lived a perfect life in your place, died a sinner's death in your place, rose from the dead to prove that God was satisfied with the, what he had done, as he said he would do, to also show us how he would raise his followers to the newness of life after they leave this tent, after they put off this bodily tent. And then he ascended into heaven, and he's seated at the right hand of God and will return one day as a judge. These are the cores of the Christian faith. When it comes to this... Um, <laughs> and people want to point out the evils of the culture, the apostles pay a lot more attention 
to the evils of false teachers in the church, to the evils of people leading other people astray. Because what do false teachers do? They will lead you astray from, and they do it very suddenly, and they, have a, they use a lot of Bible a lot of times, but they will lead you away from the core of the faith. If you're familiar with the book of 1 Corinthians, that's exactly what was going on there. In 1 Corinthians, the false teachers were leading people into the deeper things. We're not into, you know, Paul, very simple. The other apostles, very simple. We are into the deeper things. What was the result? The Corinthians began to think they were more mature than everybody else. What was the result of that? There was tons of sin in the Corinthian church. Tons of it. Because they had forgotten the core truths of the gospel. So when the apostle Paul came to them, he said this, 1 Corinthians 2, 2, for I deter, when he wrote to them, for I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. That's basically the same thing that Peter is saying, that the so-called deeper things will lead you away from the essential thing. And what is the essential thing? We just read it. For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Perhaps you've heard of a movement which is really gaining a lot of steam. And, you know, sometimes you're like, why are you always pointing out all these different movements? Because they're always coming. They, not, they, not, they haven't stopped. They haven't stopped since Jesus ascended into heaven. We see them in the Bible. They continue to keep coming. They change their form a little bit here and there. Uh, but yet they never stop coming. And there's a very fast-growing movement now called progressive Christianity. You'll hear people say, well, I'm a progressive Christian. And you, not wanting to be like, well, I'm not some old fuddy-duddy. Yes, I'm very progressive myself. But no, you're probably not. Progressive Christianity, say, what is it? It is very hard to define. It is very hard to define. We Basically, in Christianity, there's maybe like seven essential core beliefs. And, and we stick to those things. And there's some secondary issues. And, you know, baptism, I would say, is a secondary issue. The timing of Jesus' return, I would say, is a secondary issue. Not, you know, is a, is a Christian allowed to have a drink? I would say that's a secondary issue. You know, drunkenness, no. But, you know, you know if you want to have a drink, have a drink. I don't whatever. But uh, I don't drink, but that doesn't mean it, that doesn't mean that's what that, that's supposed to be for you. And so um, progressive Christianity is very hard to define because it is very diverse. And whenever you have a, a movement that is very diverse, it's always going to be hard to define. What makes it hard, what makes it so diverse is that some of them are discarding parts of the word of God. Some of them are changing parts of the word of God. Some of them are challenging things of the word of God. They would say, oh, Jesus could have never said that because that's not unloving. And we know that Jesus is loving, so he could have never said that. Um, others of them are rejecting parts of the, the word of God. Others are picking and choosing much of the teaching of the word of God. Now, interestingly enough, about progressive Christianity, this movement is largely filled with less, um, uh, excuse me, uh, ex-evangelical Christians, people who once believed the Bible or who were raised to believe the Bible, and they just said, you know, I can't buy it all. I'm not going to totally throw the baby out with the bathwater, although a lot of them don't believe a lot of the essentials of the Christian faith, and so what are they doing? A lot of them are drawing other people away from the core teaching of the Word of God. Now, one of their big points, and, you know, I get it. I'm, I get it. One of their big points is they're very critical of the way some Christians live. Are the people there critical of Christians? I don't know. I don't really know. You know, Jesus told the parable of the, of, of the wheat and the chaff. You know, there's just some, you, you know, the weeds are, and let's, let's put it simple, the weeds and the wheat. And he just says, you know, don't try and pick them out because you're going to uproot the others. Let them grow together, and at the end of harvest time, that's when we'll sort things out. 
So we know that there are unbelieving people in the believing church. And so they're very critical of people like that. Um, they're very critical of how a lot of people who claim to be Christians have, have disconnected the teaching of Jesus from everyday life. That's a legitimate criticism. That's a legitimate criticism. But you can't change the cross and the resurrection. You, you can't change the virgin birth. There's just, you can't change the deity or the fact that God became a man in the person of Jesus Christ. Those are non-negotiables. And so Peter and the apostles would tell us the best way to get people to truly live the Christian life is to what? Is to constantly remind them. And how do we do that here? We remind one another, we remind each other by teaching the word of God. That's the primary method in which we do it. Occasionally we do some other things, but that's the primary diet that we are on here. And it should be the more we are reminded and the more we remind one another what Jesus has done for us as that becomes part of who we are the more we will respond in love and obedience. Uh, to, to think that we've arrived and we're, like the Corinthians, ready to move on to other things or deeper things that are not the gospel is very dangerous. But Peter's goal is, I think, is more than just to remind us. Look, look at the end of verse 13. What does he say? To stir you up. I love that. To stir you up. He says, I'm not just reminding you like, okay, don't forget this class. You know, talking to a bunch of, you know, fourth graders. Okay, Mr. So-and-so, we understand. No, he says, I want to stir you up. by How does he do it? By reminding you. He says, I don't want you just to have a bunch of head knowledge. I, I don't want that. I want to stir you up. The Apostle Paul says, I want to stir you to love and good deeds. Peter's like, I want to stir you up. I want to excite you to live for Jesus. I want you to be excited about the word of God. I want you to be excited about the things of God. I want you to cherish the gospel. I want you to be motivated by grace, and I want to spur you on to action. I want to stir you up. In other words, Peter's like, I want to rock the boat. I want to really, all of us, to get up and to get going. Now, some use the word here, they use the word arouse. And the idea is Peter's saying, I want to arouse you from your sleep. It's like he's saying to some of them in the churches that he's writing to, some of you guys, in your Christian life, you're actually asleep. You're actually asleep, and I want to wake you up. I want you to reject the false teachers. I don't want you to follow the ways of the culture that are, that are against God, and I want you to cling to Christ and follow hard after him. How does that happen? Peter is making the case that this happens when we learn and relearn the gospel, what Jesus has done for us, every day, and to be excited about it. In fact, let's reread verse 14 again to get his sense of urgency. He says, knowing that shortly I must put off my tent. What's he saying again? I don't have much time left. I'm going to die soon. Just as our Lord Jesus Christ showed me. Another verse says, just as the Lord made it clear to me. Now, there's a few things going on here, and we always have to be careful because sometimes we're like, ooh, how did he know? How did he know? And what happens is when you find yourself in that place, not that it's wrong to figure that stuff out, but you can very easily missing the point of what he's trying to make. So how did Peter know that he was going to die soon? Many people say it was the prophecy of Jesus at the end of the Gospel of John, which was about 40 years ago, 
when he was young. Well, of course that would be, have to be part of it. I'm not saying that's all of it, but that would have to be part of it. Others say that Jesus spoke to him directly. Like, hey, you know, Pete, coming to the end here, buddy. Keep pressing in there. Don't give up. That's quite possible. That's quite possible. Others would say that it would, the, the, the persecution of the Roman Empire was breathing down his neck. Maybe that's true. Maybe that's true. Others simply say, well, he was getting old. Well, he's not that old, but he's getting, they're saying, well, well he's getting old. There are also some traditions that I find a bit bizarre. I'm sorry, I find a bit bizarre. One is that Jesus, uh, Peter was leaving Rome because he didn't want to deal with the trouble in Rome. You know, he's in the headquarters of the Roman Empire, so he's like, I got to get out of this place. And Jesus appeared to him and said, hey, turn around, I want you to go die in Rome. I find that a little troublesome. Another one that I find even more troublesome is that um, Jesus was, Peter was leaving, he met Jesus, and Jesus said, oh, I'm on my way to Rome to die again. And he said, why don't you come with me and die with me? And Peter said, sure, I remember I told you I would die with you, I'm going to do that. I find those theories rather troublesome. So let's take the one we know for sure. John chapter 21, the risen Christ has restored Peter uh, after Peter denied him. Jesus, he, Peter denied him. Jesus died on the cross. He rose from the dead. He meets them on the beach. They're eating. And then Jesus says to him, John 21, 18 and 19, Most assuredly, I say to you, uh, when you were younger, you girded yourself and walked there, walked where you wish. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will gird you and carry you where you do not wish. So he's saying, hey, Pete, you're going to live to a ripe old age. But in the end, people are going to be, you know, walking you around and they're going to carry you where you don't want to go. Uh, verse 19 this he spoke, this is some commentary from, from John, this he spoke signifying by what death he would glorify God. Peter would glorify God. And when he had spoken this, he said to him, Jesus said to Peter, follow me. Now, tradition has it that Peter was crucified upside down. Now I'm going to educate you on something else. Um, in the unlikely event that you meet someone who claims to be a student of New Testament textual criticism. That's a mouthful, isn't it? Translation, they've read a Bart Ehrman book. <laughs> That's what most people are who are New Testament textual critics. If they're nearby and somebody says that or you say that and they want to dispute it because some recent evidence indicates that actually might not be true. And some of the scholars who used to say that have actually pointed out to some of the younger scholars that have found perhaps evidence that's not true. They didn't get angry. They said, hey, thanks for correcting it. We're really, really thankful. What do you say if somebody says that? You say, well, that's just a tradition. That's not in the Bible. A lot of those kinds of things people say is in the Bible is not in the Bible. Another thing we see here is the urgency Peter has in reminding the people of God that he's going to leave his tent soon. That's why he wants to wake them up. That's why he wants to stir them up, to value the gospel in a fresh and passionate way way. In other words, the Apostle Peter knows to make it as far as he has made it in the Christian life, you have to treasure the gospel in your heart. If you don't, and you, you and I even live under one one-hundredth of the persecution this guy lived under, we won't make it. We won't make it. It doesn't take much for people who don't treasure the gospel in their heart 
to jump ship. It doesn't take much at all. And so this is what he wants them to do. He wants them in it for the long haul. Failure to do so will lead to a compromised faith or, or a falling away. And God help us to have his sense of urgency. But, but the last thing I think we see here, now there, there may be more, please don't think that I think that I've got it all, is the apostle's approach to death. Once again, he's just merely, he's saying, listen, I'm just folding up my tent. I'm just breaking camp. I'm moving to the next place. What's the next place? John 14, I go to prepare a place for you. That's what he told them at the Last Supper. So Peter's not, he's not, he's not afraid to die. He has no regrets. Interesting, in America, we won't even talk about death. We, people, it's like the last thing people want to talk about. Peter has no problem talking about it. I'm at the end of the line. It's okay. I'm ready to go. Bags are packed. I already took down my tent. I'm ready. But we, we, live, we talk in America like we're going to live forever. You know, how many times have I said to you before, people go, I bought life insurance in case I die someday. In case you die someday, <laughs> you're going to die someday. But it matter is what's going to, what matters is where do you go when you die? Have you put your trust in Jesus? Do you want to go to be with him forever? Or you're like, no, I don't really want to go there. Well, then you know what the alternative is. You either go to heaven or you go to hell. You can choose tonight where you want to go. So what do you choose? For Peter and the other apostles, for any follower of Jesus, death simply means the entrance into the everlasting kingdom of heaven where you will be with King Jesus. The apostle Paul felt the same way. Writing from prison or perhaps under house arrest in the book of Philippians chapter 1, verse 21 and 20 through 23, for to me, he says, to live is Christ and to die is gain. I'm here. Jesus is with me. This is great. I love it here. I love living. I love living. But if I die, it's going to be even better. It's going to be even better. Verse 22. But if I live on in the flesh, this will mean fruit from my labor. Yet what shall I choose? I cannot tell. He's like, I don't, I don't, I don't really know. And, you know, that's a good way to be. It's a good way to be torn between, between wanting to live more and wanting to go to heaven because he has a purpose. He says, for I am hard-pressed between the two. When he says fruit from our, my labor, it means people coming to Christ and people maturing in Christ because of his labor. For I am hard-pressed, verse 23, between the two, having a desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. You see, the Apostle Paul wanted to pour into people, but he wanted to be with Christ. He perfectly enjoyed knowing Christ in this life, but wanted to know him in a fuller sense, in a new way. And the Apostles clearly knew that death is the way that God brings his children home. Verse 15, moreover, he says, Peter says, I will be careful to ensure that you always have a reminder of these things after my decease. The Holman Christian Standard Bible says this, same verse, 2 Peter 1.15, And I will also make every effort that you may be able to recall these things at any time after my departure. I love that word departure. He's like, he's like that, that really, I like that word better. Like, you know, it's not my death. It, it's my departure. I just, I just went somewhere else. It's almost like when you, when you do a, a funeral as a pastor, you do a funeral for someone who died in Christ. You know that their feeling is, don't feel bad for me. Don't feel bad for me. Feel bad for the people that are left, that are grieving. But don't feel bad for me. 
Peter is focused that they know these things. This is interesting. You know how we talk about getting our affairs in order? People go, you know, you get a bad diagnosis, and the doctor says, well, you might want to go put your things in order. This is how he's getting his affairs in order. He's doing it for people. And he has, you don't see any retirement plans here, do you? He's not going to retire. He is going to proclaim the Lord with every last breath that he has. That doesn't mean that you can't retire, but you don't retire from being a, a gospel man or a gospel woman. Now, what, is he, what does he mean? Well, some say this letter is one of his efforts. Others say his, his collaboration or dictation to Mark uh, of the Gospel of Mark. It could be what he's going to tell us next time that uh, or next, that he was an eyewitness of Jesus, and he also knows that the prophetic word told us about Jesus the Messiah. What's very interesting about Peter in his planning for his departure is that he seems to be under the impression that the word of God will be preserved forever and ever. We call this the doctrine of preservation or the doctrine of preservation of the word of God. In other words, God supernaturally preserved this book. We have more manuscripts of the New Testament than any other manuscript by far, any other piece of written work, that God supernaturally preserved the word of God. Now, where would Peter get such an idea? I think he got it from the prophet Isaiah, um, who, who wrote these famous words, Isaiah 48. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Another version says, will stand forever. Another says, it remains forever. I think my favorite version of this says that it endures forever. That, that the word of God will endure forever. Well, now, once again, we have to meet your friend who claims to be a student of textual criticism, who wants to tell you, and they're going to, the, the more people read the internet, the more educated they are in these things, uh, the more, we talked about it Sunday, that the newer generation is, is working very hard to disprove Christianity. So part of my job, we are supposed to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, Part of my job is to help you, equip you to have some of these conversations with people. Not that you'll bring it up, they're going to come at you with it. Like, what are you doing Sunday? I'm going to church. Ah, oh, ah, oh, no, no way, man, that's just all wrong. So what, is, what does a, a New Testament textual critic say about what Peter just said? They would say, that a lot of the manuscripts don't exactly match up. You say, I agree. That's what you say. They didn't have the printing press. They didn't have PDFs. People had a copy. That's how they had it. That's why some places just to have one page of the Bible. It's even in parts of the world still today to have one page of the Bible or or different churches in an in a, in a, in a area will each have a couple pages of the Bible and they will keep moving them around between each other because their countries don't allow Bibles into those areas. And so, and so what happened is people would copy the Bible. Well, did you ever go to copy something and make a mistake in your copying? It can happen to anybody. So if somebody says to you, well, all the manuscripts don't exactly match, you just say, I agree that there can be scribal errors. There can be scribes that made mistakes. But by the same token, they would say, if they all agreed, they would go, listen, some guy, bunch of guys, some guy wrote it all and, and just disseminated it out and made it seem like it was found all over the world and just did a, did a scam. There's other stuff they'll say is inconsistent. They'll say, well, this guy said there was two people. This guy said there was one people, one person there. Well, if there's two people in a room, it also means there's one person in a room. And if there's one person in a room, it doesn't mean that there weren't two. It just means they only want to talk about the one. Let me give you an example. You go to a party. You got a friend named Bob. Come home. Family says, hell, how was the party? 
It was great. You know, maybe there was 100 people there. You go, who was there? You go, oh, Bob was there. Does that mean the other 99 weren't there? No. So we, so we say that we have to think about these types of things. All they're saying is, when they say that, there's, that the manuscripts don't match up, is that they're saying that some things were copied wrong or that some things may have been added by scribes for clarification. I think the classic is the, the Gospel of Mark. Now, I'm going off a little bit of memory here. That, that some versions say at the beginning, uh, Jesus is the Son of God, and some versions don't. And they're like, see, that's an inconsistency. But in other places in Mark's gospel, he's called that. So it's possible a scribe put it in just for an internal consistency to clarify things. What you want to say to people when they challenge that stuff is you simply say this. I don't disagree that that could happen. However, it's always important to remember that not one New Testament doctrine has changed because of these errors. That's what you need to, that's what you need to tell people. And, and what's really important is they say, well, you say that it's the word of God doesn't have any errors in it. I know this, is, this always rubs a lot of people the wrong way. We believe that it is the original apostle or the amanuensis, the guy they dictated to, pen to paper, that is what is without error. Not necessarily the scribes, and especially if the scribes make a mistake. But what we have here is we have very accurate manuscripts. We have no changes in doctrine. We just have some slight variations uh, here and there, and contemporary biblical scholarship perfectly acknowledges that. So realize they're just doing what? They're taking you off Peter's point. Peter's point is this, that the gospel must be deeply embedded in the hearts and minds of a true follower of Jesus Christ. He's not talking about how the people are going to copy what he wrote. He's not going to talk about if people, if he dictates it to Mark and, and somebody copies Mark's gospel, if they got a couple words wrong here and there. Peter's heart's desire is the Lord's heart desire that we would recall the word of God and have reminders in our hearts, but not just for when we think we need it. People say, oh, I, have, you know, I got it there for when I need it. But rather, the word of God helps us to live the cross-centered life, the life of sacrifice. Now, I'm sure you've met people, and, and, and it's, they are true in this one sense. They'll say, well, we have baptism and we have communion as reminders. We do. We do. But for some people, that's the only reminders that they have. You know, people have me people, well, you know, I, I, I got baptized, made my communion, did my confirmation, did all that stuff. I'm done. I'm done. We need to say to them, well, what's going on today? What's going on in your, in your heart today with the Lord Jesus? Following Jesus is not just about knowing things and then living like an unbelieving believer. It's letting the cross of Christ change your life. It's not grasping the gospel as much as the gospel. Jesus Christ dying on the cross in your place for your sins, grasping you. Oh, yes, you do need to grasp the concepts of the gospel. But until the gospel grasps you, you're not going to see significant change in your life. Maybe tonight you're not a follower of Jesus. How does the gospel grasp you? Jesus calls you and says, come, come. His arms wide open calling you to come. And the gospel, as much as you say, I think I get it, you realize it's pulling you in. Jesus is pulling you in. He says, my sheep 
know my voice. All of a sudden, you're like, man, I know the voice of God. I'm hearing Jim talk, but you know, there's something else going on. There's another voice going on in my head. And today, you can turn to Jesus Christ. You can put your trust in him. And if you're a follower of Jesus, it's about living a life that sees the necessity of reminders, the necessity of thinking about the gospel daily, the necessity of of studying the word of God, getting into the word of God, getting the word of God into you, and how that fuels your Christian life, how that fuels your Christian growth, and how that keeps you spiritually alive so you excel, so you grow, so you don't wither. Well, let's pray. Well, Lord, we